party that gave us a decade of austerity now claim to be the party of high wages. Should we believe a word that's said at Tory party conference? I'll be speaking to James Meadway about the economic reality behind the slogans. And I'm joined all evening by Ash Sarkar. No one better than, than Ash to cut through Boris Johnson's bullshit. How are you doing this evening? Well, me, a good divorce lawyer, you know, same job, really. <laughs> they, they apparently have been costly for him, but I don't, know, I don't know if that says anything about the lawyers or just how, how many there have been. We have a few more stories for you tonight. Um, we'll be talking about the the latest news from the Met Police and also some revelations from the Pandora Papers. We are on day two of Tory party conference and Boris Johnson appears to have settled on a new dividing line for the next general election. Attempting to flip the fuel crisis to his advantage, the Prime Minister will propose Britons face a choice between high immigration and low wages with Labour or high wages and controlled immigration with the Conservatives. This was Johnson speaking on Sunday to Andrew Marr. The way forward for our country is not to uh, just pull the big lever marked uncontrolled uh, immigration and, uh, and and allow in uh, huge numbers of people to to do work. So you've cracked it a bit of the way, haven't uh, you? In a controlled way, that's that's entirely sensible. But what some people are saying is have hundreds of thousands of, of, of people in, which I don't think it says well. Let me just give, this is a very very serious point because our country you know has been running at a comparatively low rate of uh, wage growth for a long time, basically stagnant wages and totally stagnant productivity, and uh, not as much growth as this country can achieve. And that is because, chronically, we have failed to invest in people, we've failed to invest in equipment, and you've seen wages flat. So what I I won't do is go back to my original question, which you may have forgotten. The old uh, failed model of low wages, uh, low skills, uh, supported by uncontrolled immigration. That was Boris Johnson. He was referring back to an answer Keir Starmer had given to Ma a week earlier. Back then, Starmer had suggested that 100,000 visas should be granted to HGV drivers to end shortages. In contrast, Boris Johnson is saying Britain should exploit labour shortages to drive up wages and working conditions. This is how he suggested that could work in the haulage industry. What we had for decades was a system whereby uh, basically, the, the road haulage industry, which is a great industry full of fantastic people, was not investing in the truck stops, uh, not improving conditions, not improving pay. And we relied on very, hang on, on very hardworking people who were willing to come in, largely from European accession countries, uh, to do that work under those conditions. And so we closed and so them that off. Is why, and so that is why, that is why that job so with those pay and, and those con- that pay and those conditions is not currently attractive. The logic and what you, and what you need okay. to do so this is a very important point. What you need I'm to do um, is make sure that the people now invest in in basic equipment sure. such as that, truck stops okay. and the such lo- as the log- such sorry, as better pay. The, the logic of what you are saying is that the shortages and the short term problems 
are an inevitable result of the policy that to get higher productivity, to get higher wages, we as a country have to go through some bumps, some shortages, some queues on the way. And that, folks, is what you voted for. When you voted for Boris's Brexit, that's what it meant. When people voted for change in 2016 and when people voted for change again in 2019, as they did, they voted for the end of a broken model of the UK economy that relied on low wages and low skill and chronic low productivity. And we're moving away from that. That was Boris Johnson claiming the Tories are moving Britain away from a low wage to a high wage economy. He, of course, brushes over the fact it was under his party that incomes plummeted in the first place. But he does have a decent personal story to tell on wages. As you can see from this chart from the BBC, George Osborne was a disaster for wages. They fell every year between 2010 and 2015. They then slowly recovered until 2020, but have now surpassed 2010 levels and at a reasonably impressive rate over the past year at least. Average weekly wages are currently around £20 higher than their pre-pandemic levels. I'm joined by James Meadway. How seriously should, should we take this new line from Boris Johnson? Oh, very seriously. It's, it's how he's going to win the election. And that's how they see it. And given the way that Labour Party is responding to all of this, I think he's almost certainly going to be right. He has a, a very solid story to tell uh, about rising wages. I think this is probably going to be a sustained increase in real wages across parts of the economy that haven't really seen them for a long period of time. I mean, just... I was in Brighton last week, just anecdotally talked to somebody who's working in security there and the door was in Brighton. He's saying that, you know, his pay's gone up 40% in the last couple of weeks because there's a shortage of people able to do that job at this point in time. Now, a bit of this somewhere in parts of the economy, a bit of this is a sort of short run effect of Brexit more likely. And you see the same thing is happening with inflation and wages in all the developed countries. So you see it in the US, you see it across Europe. There are reports now of increasing numbers of strikes in Europe because of, of the impact of inflation and, and demands for higher wages. So it's not just Brexit, it's the impact of coronavirus really playing itself out. So he's got a good story to tell and he's going to use it. And the response from Labour has basically been to try and talk about anything other than pay and to talk about workers organising and to talk about collective action to secure more pay and to instead focus on you know mad internal party battles, for example. So I think he's in a strong position with this. Um, the fact that the government has absolutely nothing to do with why people's wages are going up is nothing to do with Boris Johnson or anything at this point in time. It just happens to be in the right place at the right time. It's a good story. I think people will believe it and, and you can understand why they might after, you know, the misery of coronavirus, the misery of the last 10 years of a Tory government. Johnson presents himself as a very different kind of Tory. People voted for him on that basis. And uh, unless the left and the Labour Party sort its act out and get a decent story around pay and around wages and around, in particular, workers organising to get more pay, I think he's, he's very likely to make a success of this. Do you unpack a bit more why why you think wages are rising? Obviously, Boris Johnson's argument there is it's because of Brexit, it's because there's less immigrants, which means that there's fewer workers, and so people have to, to pay more um, to get people who are already here to work in those jobs. He can claim credit for that because he was an early backer of, of Brexit. You're saying it's actually more to do with COVID. What, what, what's that argument? 
The argument there is is around a couple of things. I mean, first of all, there, there is there is at least a short term Brexit impact. I mean, I think that that is fairly clearly playing itself out in some parts of the economy. Some of that is is you're seeing as as kind of shortages related to distribution Brexit. Some of that you're seeing as as spikes in in pay for bits of the economy where very directly Brexit has had a sort of immediate impact on whether you can access particular kinds of labour or not. So lorry drivers, for example. The more general pattern is that what you're seeing is is during the course of the pandemic is a series of attempts to restrict how and when you can use labour. So in other words, instead of saying to employers, basically, particularly in a flexible labour market like Britain is supposed to have, you can, as an employer, employ whoever you want, whenever you want, for whatever pay you can get away with, right? What you get with COVID is lots of restrictions on how you can do that. And in particular, over the last year in this country, when you had things like furlough payment, when you had lots of people uh, sitting, not supplying their labour and protected by the government from the consequences of doing that through furlough, payments and this sort of thing. And at the same time, you had much less demand in parts of the economy. That kind of shrinks everything a bit. Now that the economy is opening up, now that you see things like people wanting to go out to bars and clubs and the rest of it, that demand is rushing ahead. But the labour supply isn't there in the same way because a lot of the restrictions and the requirements to how you use labour are, are still in place. That applies in Britain. It applies across Europe. It applies, applies across North America. The early evidence in the US is really striking on this, that you're starting to see for the first time really in 40 years that the pay increases that are happening are happening for the lowest paid rather than the highest paid. Now, that is some of that is deliberate government policy to make that happen. Uh, I mean, what strikes me about what Boris Johnson is now saying is that it's not it's not Keir Starmer who's saying to employers, just pay them more, like Joe Biden is doing in the US. It's Boris Johnson's time to come out with this sort of stuff. It's the Tories, John Redwood saying, oh, you should pay people more. <laughs> that should be the rhetoric that Labour is grabbing hold of and using right now. And it's, it's, it's really negligent to spend the entire week at conference talking about almost anything accept the fuel crisis, accept what's happening to pay and saying, look, we're the party of workers. We're the people who are going to support you going on strike, organising, getting out there and fighting for that high pay that you deserve after 10 years of Tory misrule. Let's take a look at another clip of Boris Johnson. Um, as we've been talking about, he's trying to use the, the fuel shortage to his advantage. He's saying, my answer is to pay the workers more. Keir Starmer's answer is more visas for for low, I mean, I don't want to use the phrase low-skilled workers because this is clearly not a low-skilled job if there are indeed any at all. Um, Keir Starmer is trying to make this an issue of competence. The government should step in and end these shortages. Boris Johnson seems fairly relaxed about the queues. We'll, we'll take each uh, step as it, as it comes. We're there to, to support uh, industries that are, that are having difficulties, but it, fundamentally it's up to... To, to them to, to work out the way ahead. In the end, the, the, those businesses, those industries are the, the best solvers of their own uh, supply chain issues. Government can't step in and, and fix every, every bit of the supply chain. But what uh, we certainly will do is, is keep all options on the table. Uh, and, but what I, I, can, I, I can tell you, uh, the, 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 the UK economy is recovering very strongly now, very fast, and you're seeing those stresses and strains as a result of that. James, is Boris Johnson right that this isn't actually really the government's job to sort this out? And if we, you know, we leave the firms to sort out their own problems, they'll end up paying workers more. So it's, it's not for the government to step in here. Well, it's a sort of, it's a very traditional uh, answers for, for a, a government to give, but particularly in this country. I mean, historically, you'd, you'd find governments saying, oh, well, this is free collective bargaining. This is between employers and their workforce to sort out pay. And Boris Johnson's doing a kind of redux version of that. I mean, the, the broader politics, of course, is that we, we just have had 
for at least 30 years in this country, very, very weak trade unions. There's still quite a few union members out there, mostly in the public sector. And by the way, public sector wages are not increasing at the same pace as private sector by a long way at this point in time. That's deliberate government policy. If the government wants to do something about pay, they could do something immediately on the public sector. So, so they've created this kind of rhetoric that's quite uh, traditional. It's almost like a social democratic post-war consensus sort of rhetoric. It's not for us to sort out, it's for workers to bargain with their employees. But we're doing it in the absence of a strong trade union movement. The, the key bit to bring into play, if we're thinking about what we should all be doing and arguing for, if you're on the left, what you want to argue for at this point in time, it's actually the sort of things that, that Sharon Graham at United has been arguing for and some of the smaller unions have been pushing, which is that we need to get right out uh, right now when there are tight labour markets and argue with absolutely everyone in every part of the economy, you should be in a union, you should be demanding more pay. That's how we start to turn this around politically, away from we're this kindly government who just happens to be overseeing lots of pay increases all over the place and into a real political fight, which is that we are supplying our labour and you employers will have to pay more to do that because the circumstances now starting to favour labour more than they have done for a long period of time. We have shown clips of Boris Johnson in interviews so far. He's going to give his conference speech on Wednesday. Today in the conference hall, it was Rishi Sunak's turn. Um, he gave his set piece speech to the conference, which was short on new announcements. The big takeaway, though, was about his attitude to borrowing. This is what he said. And there can be no prosperous future unless it is built on the foundation of strong public finances. I have to be blunt with you. Our recovery comes with a cost. Our national debt is almost 100% of GDP. So we need to fix our public finances. Because strong public finances don't happen by accident. They are a deliberate choice. They are a legacy for future generations and a safeguard against future threats. I'm grateful. We should all be grateful to my predecessors and their 10 years of sound conservative management of our economy. They, they believed in fiscal responsibility. I believe in fiscal responsibility and everyone in this hall does too. And whilst I know tax rises are unpopular, some will even say unconservative. I'll tell you what is unconservative. Unfunded pledges, reckless borrowing and soaring debt. Anyone who tells you that you can borrow more today and tomorrow will simply sort itself out, just doesn't care about the future. That was Rishi Sunak sounding much more traditional um, in his conservatism than Boris Johnson. Is his supposed rhetorical commitment, at least, to balanced budgets going to undermine any strategy Boris Johnson might have to, to oversee rising wages and, and productivity? Well, if he, if he ever follows through in it, yes, you'd expect that if the government is going to sit there and as it did for 10 years under the Conservatives coalition with the Liberal Democrats in 2010, then the Conservatives alone from 2015, the government's going to sit there and, and cut its own spending, suck demand out of the economy. You can see the consequence of that on the, the graph you just showed. It's basically falling real wages for about 10 years through to, you know, not quite 10 years, about four, four or five years of falling real wages and then some recovery afterwards, actually, as they start to ease off a little bit on, on austerity over that later period of time. So, so that's what would happen 
if Rishi Sunak actually does that. But you, you think with the Tories at the minute, it's, it's kind of like it's par parodying St. Augustine's prayer, you know, Lord, make me fiscally responsible, but just not yet. I mean, this is what Rishi Sunak is saying. At some point, maybe we'll have tax cuts, but not right now. That's not what we're going to do. To me, this was him simultaneously pitching to be a future leader of the Tory party, because he's the one who actually wants to do all those nice Tory things like, you know, big cuts, lower taxes. But he's also at the same time saying, nothing fundamentally is going to change. There is no big announcement in his speech. Boris Johnson, who is very much in, in charge of this government, he is a very powerful prime minister, as the reshuffle demonstrated. He sets the tone for what happens. He has, quite unusually in this country, I think, sat on the Treasury uh, to, to a large extent. We, we haven't had a government that's really systematically worked against the Treasury, where Rishi Sunak is supposed to be the cabinet minister that systematically has worked against the treasury really perhaps since Harold Wilson uh, in his first government up to you know 1966 and the, the collapse of of uh, the, the national plan and the, and the collapse of the Ministry of Economic Affairs. So it's really going back a long way before you find a government's prepared to squash the treasury in the way that Boris Johnson has done. And I think that'll probably continue. Um, if there's any surprises this week and there's all this chatter about you know big minimum wage increase Another way to mess up Labour, by the way, is just say, OK, here's your £10.50 an hour minimum wage. Let's say you go above £10 an hour and say, we can actually do this while Labour, on the one hand, talks nonsense about £15 an hour, on the other hand, fails to deliver anything. That's going to be the rhetoric. And it's a relatively cheap, easy thing for the tourists to do. And I suspect Johnson will save something like that for his own speech. The universal credit cut, which is due to come in force on Wednesday, does that slightly, you know, you've talked about Boris Johnson sitting on the Treasury and not actually being that fussed about balanced budgets, they're willing to put money in people's pockets. Does that £20 cut not kind of undermine all of that in a way? It's classic Treasury thinking to, to assume that this is a good idea, and it, it ties very nicely with sort of that section of the Tory base that just wants to see cuts in place. They want to see government uh, shrunk and the rest of it. The cut is, is still due to go ahead. My, my strong suspicion is that by the time we get to the spending review, which is later in this month, and this is the big uh, attempt by uh, the, the Treasury and Rishi Sunak to lay out the government's plans from uh, spending plans really from now until the next election let's say 2023, most likely 2024, uh, and to detail how much each department will have. Now, I think that is going to be presented for some slightly technical reasons. It's going to get presented by Rishi Sunak as being much more generous than he was ever going to be, because he's doing the classic thing as a chancellor and saying, oh, it's going to be very tight. Oh, it's going to be very tight. And then you spend a bit more and suddenly you look like Mr. Generosity and Rishi Sunak is dishy Rishi, dishing out the cash uh, all over again. He may have his own ideological predilections about this, but the fact is he's a popular chancellor because he's paying lots and lots of people lots and lots of money. Uh, he knows that and he's not going to want to wind back in it and there's no real uh, reason for them to do that. So I suspect by the time we get to the spending review, we'll get some nuances around the universal credit cut. Fundamentally, these people are still Tories. That's why they're pushing ahead with something obviously cruel and miserable and devastating to large numbers of people. But there is some thinking around here and some of it, I suspect, is, well, if it's £20 a week that you're losing universal credit since Boris Johnson became Prime Minister, Average real wages, uh, weekly earnings are up twenty pounds. If you look at the ONS figures, so you can see how they might want to say, "Well, actually, we're shifting the economy away from the state and onto the private sector." Isn't this good? Vote for us in twenty twenty four. Yeah, so that spending review is going to be something to look out for. James Meadway, thank you as ever for making the the economic story all make sense. I, I feel clearer now uh, in terms of what they're talking about at the Tory Party conference. So thank you so much. We'll speak soon. No worries. Thank you. Ash, I want to go to you for the political take on all of this. You know, it's said so often that it seems kind of ridiculous when people say, oh, the Tories are parking their tanks on Labour's lawn. But if we take, you know, James Meadway's analysis seriously, that it seems like, you know, this time around, maybe they really are. 
No, they really are doing something different. And I think it's important to recognise that Boris Johnson is very different from the Conservative Party leaders who came before. He has embraced a populist agenda. He's also been able to batter his own party largely into submission and get them to go along with this agenda, which means that you essentially have a, a degree of some protection doled out to bits of the workforce, which were, you know, battered and bruised under austerity. But you also have it within a deeply nationalist framework, which can still stay appealing. It's not all that left wing in a sense that it's pitched as punishing a different bit of the workforce of course, here, this means the migrant workforce. And the reason why it's appealing is that it can kind of um, attack the immigration question from two directions. One is, I think, appealing to voters who don't necessarily get all that wound up by, you know, cultural issues, who is, who isn't integrating, can you hear a foreign accent at the school gates, that kind of thing, but do see those sectors, particularly in low-wage employment, where there is a degree of wage suppression, where you also have high levels of immigration, where you've also got workforces which are made highly precarious, low levels of unionization, so on and so forth. And they see that and they go, well, hang on, there is, there is a case here to be made for driving up wages by restricting the flow of labor across borders. And then you've got the other side of the equation, which is there is a significant portion, particularly of Leave and Conservative voters, who, when polled by Lord Ashcroft in 2016, said that they would happily see a significant reduction in their own household income if it also meant a significant reduction in immigration. And this is to do with some of these cultural questions rather than bread and butter economic ones. So we do have a huge amount of disruption at the moment, particularly amongst fuel and amongst food shortages, you know, supermarket shelves going empty, that kind of thing. And because you've got Boris Johnson, which is a Tory leader who is ideologically very agile, he's happy to put things together which aren't necessarily traditionally found within the same political home. He will do two things. One, he'll go, okay, oh, this is nothing to do with Brexit. One minute. Then he'll go, no, this is to do with Brexit, but the interest in driving up wages. And then it's also speaking to, you know, that bit of the base, which is like, well, look, we're making the omelette. This is the bit where we're cracking eggs. It's difficult. You're going to see shortages, but this is what you voted for. You want immigration lower by hook or by crook. So it's a kind of quite expansive political pitch. And unfortunately, Labour doesn't have any compelling arguments against it. Kiyosama still is mostly talking about immigration in this very technocratic way, which is immigration solves problems in certain areas of the labor market. So we will, uh, you know, give more temporary working visas uh, to migrant workers. Now, obviously, those temporary working visas create a more exploitable workforce, because if you have people working on the basis of their presence here is tied to their job and it's only for a certain amount of time, they are a more exploitable worker, right? That's also why you're not necessarily seeing huge numbers of foreign workers coming here to plug the HGV shortage because essentially you're asking them to do it on less attractive terms than they had before when freedom of movement was still in place. Um, Kirstama is still approaching it very much in that way. So it's neither really addressing the fundamental question of wages, nor is it making a case for migration based on, I don't know, the inherent humanity and dignity of you know, people who are born in different countries who want to come and make a life for themselves here. Um, and so when you're kind of abdicating the terrain in that way, don't be surprised when the Tories make gains at Labour's expense. Cam Sandu asks a very relevant question here. What narrative did the Labour Party have? Seems like Tories are already getting started on their election storyline, while Starmer wishes it was 2014 again. I mean, what narrative did the Labour Party have? I definitely cannot answer that question. I presume the strategy 
is they want to be as inoffensive as possible to the voters they're targeting, who are core key voters in, in Red Bull seats. Obviously, they want to offend a bunch of other people who they don't want to be part of their party. Um, but they want to uh, be as inoffensive as possible to those people, hope that Boris Johnson makes loads and loads of mistakes, and then swoop in and say, we can be the competent government in waiting. The problem there, as we keep seeing, is that what would often be defined as a political mistake or a political crisis, for example, queues to get petrol, Boris Johnson is quite adept at twisting so that they are in his own advantage. So that they've found a real sort of populist dividing line when it comes to these queues, which is we can have higher wages with the Conservatives or we can have high immigration with the Labour Party. That's the kind of angle um, that Boris Johnson will be very happy to go into a general election with. So waiting around for them to make mistakes probably won't work. We have a comment on Twitch. Hi to our viewers on Twitch. Mad Maple Syrup says, amazing the Tories have been in power since 2010. All of this happened under their watch, um, which is amazing. And it is amazing how, you, you know, you saw Boris Johnson there in that Andrew Marr interview basically saying the last 10 years were rubbish. You know, <laughs> wages, wages were stagnant for the last 10 years and we're going to move away from this economic model. So at the same time, you know, you've got Keir Starmer saying, we have to say what Tony Blair did was brilliant. Let's redo the 90s and redo the noughties. Boris Johnson has realized that times have changed. We live in a different reality. People are demanding different things. Um, it is more than about time that the Labour Party realized that. This Wednesday, Rishi Sunak's £20 cut to universal credit will come into effect. The cut will make 4.4 million households poorer. Each will typically lose 5% of their disposable income, and the cut is expected to push 300,000 children into poverty. The Chancellor likes to pretend this cut is a natural consequence of the end of lockdowns, but some in his party are rehashing the more openly reactionary arguments of the 2010s. This is Wayne Fitzgerald, the Conservative leader of Peterborough Council, speaking to the BBC. Finances, for many, are at critical. But there are other ways that you can go and generate some money for your family. I think I would be one of the first to say here that families should take responsibility for themselves, the way they live their lives, how many children they have, what they do with their cash, what jobs they have. That was the leader of Peterborough Council saying that those facing cuts to universal credit should think about how many children they have and what jobs they have. Ash, it's pretty gross to hear the return of kid shaming, isn't it? Blaming people for the kids they have to justify cuts which will affect their children. I'm going to get onto the kid shaming in just one second, but can I just point out the idiocy, the sheer thunderheadedness of the sentence that came out of this idiot's mouth, which is that families should take responsibility for what kind of jobs they have. As if somebody is in a low-wage job They've got the option of a higher paid one and they are merely in the low wage job for shits and giggles. You know, you've got somebody who's like, you know, I really liked, you know, the pay that came with, I don't know, being a city lawyer. But the reason why I'm a rider for Deliveroo is just I like working out. You know, it's a complete fantasy which ignores willfully how poverty curtails people's choices in life and their agency within their own life. All right. That's what the absence of money does. You know, the choice for kind of 
self-actualization is like dramatically narrowed when you simply don't have any money. So this man, I'm sorry, is an utter buffoon. He shouldn't be trusted with a pair of safety scissors, let alone be leader of any city council. And then let's take, I think, you know, what was once a very classic Tory line, you hear it a bit less, but it is still there, I think, within Tory party circles, which is that people should take responsibility for how many children they have. And that's why you can't expect a welfare state to be that generous, because it discourages people from making prudent choices in the act of, you know, conception, pregnancy and childbirth. Why, even if all of this is true, would you go, well, the thing that we should do is keep children in impoverished situations because of choices that their parents did or did not make. So you're face to face with a kid who can't get new school shoes, who's experiencing food poverty, who's maybe in some overcrowded multiple occupancy hellhole. And you go, listen, mate, I know you're five years old and this situation really sucks for you, but I'm sorry, your parents should have done something different. And maybe, you know, you should have, uh, you know, had some thought of your parents' financial situation before you chose to exist. All right. It's a completely cruel logic dressed up in the guise of personal responsibility, which is we will punish children for being born poor or finding themselves in an impoverished situation, right? It's completely monstrous. The second thing is, of course, people's lives don't work in a linear way. So even if you, you know, had this idea that, you know, you should never have children unless you're completely certain of the idea that you can pay for them properly for, you know, the first 18 years of their lives. Well, people lose their jobs. Parents divorce, parents split up, some parents even die. Children are, you know, taken into the care system. There's all sorts of things which disrupt people's lives, which means that they've got a degree of financial insecurity that the state needs to come step in and help out to make sure that those families, those children aren't pushed out of survival, all right, that they're able to live some kind of a dignified life. I personally think that every single child in this country deserves to live a good life. And that means I don't give a shit what their parents may have done or may not have done, whether their parents are deserving poor or undeserving poor. Fundamentally, that kid deserves food on the table, you know, school shoes on their feet, access to books, access to play space, a good home, you know, heating on, you know, not being choked out by air pollution. And that means the state should do absolutely whatever is necessary to make sure that every single child in the country has access to that. Difference between me and, you know, this fucking buffoon at Peterborough Council is that I don't think that children should be punished for the circumstances of their parents. Under no situation that should happen. I mean, it's even darker than that, because I think what they'd say from a social policy perspective, right, is, yeah, obviously it would be completely ir ir irrational to, to punish children for what their parents did especially as it's after the fact because you can't disincentivize someone from having a kid they've already had but you can imagine them sort of talking to the five-year-old and saying look i'm sorry it's it's really unfair but you have to live in poverty to disincentivize future working class women from having children so sorry i, I know life's not very fair i know i've had it quite lucky and you're going to have to go hungry this winter but this is the only way um that we can stop working class people having too many children so tough luck i'm afraid Maybe vote, maybe vote conservative in in the future if if you don't want any more immigrants in the country. Um, all pretty sick. You're right to bring up how ridiculous it is to say people could choose better jobs. Why I think this is interesting is because you know, as you said, this reference to using social policy to discourage people from having kids and blaming 
kids for the decisions of their parents. I don't even want to say it's not, it's not a bad decision to have kids. Actually, as a country, we kind of need more young people. If you're going to cut off migration and now stop people having babies, I don't know who's going to look after us when we all get old. But that's a slightly separate point. I want to talk about the bit you picked up on, which is him saying you could choose to have a better paid job because this this is a real difference, I think, from the start of the 2010s. Because back then it was all about the problem is people who are out of work. What we need to do is use social policy and poverty to incentivize people to go and get jobs. Work is the route out of poverty. Then what happened is everyone pointed out, whoa, 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 you have got lots of people in jobs, unemployment very, very low, but these jobs are so poorly paid that these families still live in poverty. And they say, oh, well, um, now we're not just going to blame people for being unemployed. We're going to blame people for being employed, but for also being badly paid. That makes no sense. That there is, there, you, at least the work shy argument was always evil, but at least it made sense. You know, it made sense to say, oh, these people, they're not going to work because they're lazy. It wasn't true. It wasn't true. That was, it's difficult to get a job in the first place. And also there's lots of people who, who couldn't go and work for various reasons. But the idea that people on low paid work should just go get better paid work. I can't see what possible narrative adds up to make that make sense. Do you think this is an outlier, this guy? Or do you think he's kind of saying what Rishi Sunak thinks? Look, I think that the current conservative cabinet have become savvy, right? That you can't really say this thing anymore. They've rebanded themselves as, you know, a tribune of the ordinary working man and woman. And so this kind of relentless poor bashing leaves a very poor taste in the mouth. However, people who are still influential within conservative circles, people who are part of that spectator, kind of spiked online, former RCP network, this is something that they do will still think. Um, fairly recently, I guess, within within the last two, three years, I was on a politics live panel with Toby Young about precisely this issue. It was about the universal credit to child cap. And he was talking about personal responsibility. And he was talking about, you know, how many children should the state, you know, sustain, you know, you can't pay for the bad choices of parents and all this kind of thing. Very much operating with this framework of the deserving and the undeserving poor. So I think that while the cabinet may have become savvy enough not to say this stuff out loud at the moment, of course, this might change, you know, someone might say something stupid in an interview. People within conservative party circles still very much think this kind of thing. I share your suspicion. If you are enjoying the show and if you usually enjoy the show, um, we would love it if you became a supporter. You can do so at navaramedia.com forward slash support. We ask for the equivalent of one hour's wage a month. Um, if you are already kindly donating to us, we offer are our sincere thanks. You are what makes this show, this organization possible. Next story. The crisis in confidence in the Metropolitan Police has taken another blow this weekend as another officer has been charged with rape. The alleged victim came forward after a whole life sentence was handed to Sarah Everard's murderer, Wayne Cousins. The alleged rapist worked in the same section of the force as Cousins. PC David Carrick, who is 46, emphatically denies the allegations. Carrick met the alleged victim via the dating app Tinder in September last year. This news comes as the Sunday Mirror report that a total of 27 Met police officers have been convicted of sex crimes in the past five years. The Sunday Mirror also report that six, since 2010, five Met officers have carried out sex offences while on duty. Astonishingly, they also find that last year a man was allowed to join the force as a special constable despite him already 
having a conviction for indecently exposing himself to a woman. Already convicted. Today, in an attempt to put a lid on this renewed focus on violence against women within the Met, Cressida Dick announced the launch of a review of professional standards and internal culture within the force. Public trust has been damaged. People are rightly gravely concerned about what they've seen. And as a consequence, uh, today I'm announcing that we will have an independent person come in and review uh, the Met in terms of its standards uh, and in terms of its culture. How we treat each other uh, and how we treat the public. Our leadership, our processes, our systems, uh, our people, our training, everything will be looked at. Uh, this will be a fully transparent report. Uh, it will respond to me, uh, but uh, will, of course, make recommendations for changes, I'm sure, and those will be public. That was Cressida Dick, the Met Commissioner. She has said that she hopes within a week a high-profile figure will be appointed to lead that review. Ash, do you find that announcement from Cressida Dick at all reassuring? Absolutely not. Cressida Dick has got to go. She should never have been um, allowed to rise to the uh, level of seniority that she has. Her role in the killing of Jean-Charles de Menezes should have put paid to that. And the fact that she did eventually become Metropolitan Police Commissioner speaks to that culture of impunity and closing ranks within the Metropolitan Police. So she has distinguished herself throughout her career, I think, by denying the scales of problems within the police and being somebody who will stand by even the most egregious forms of behavior in order to preserve the power and the status of the Metropolitan Police as an institution. So the very minimum that needs to happen next is, of course, her resignation. And I want to talk very briefly about the culture of independent reviews and the police, because, of course, the most famous one is the McPherson report, which followed the, uh, you know, botched and corrupt investigations into the murder of Stephen Lawrence and the report very famously established that the Metropolitan Police is institutionally racist. Now, the reason why that report ended up being so powerful wasn't simply because it put things in a strongly worded way. What followed was a series of institutional responses which were able in some way to mitigate the power of the Metropolitan Police and forced through even very small changes. So you had the establishment of the Stephen Lawrence Steering Committee, which I think was actually wrapped up by a Labour Home Secretary, which meant that you did have a kind of coalition of figures um, holding the Metropolitan Police to account on matters relating to institutional racism. Now, of course, those changes and that accountability were nowhere near far-reaching enough. I think that there's a very decent question to be asked about whether or not the Metropolitan Police can be reformed at all. But that is what followed. So you didn't just have a report kind of being popped into the ether. You had this quite substantive institutional response which followed through on the report. Now, I don't think that this is going to be that kind of thing. I don't think that we're going to have a steering committee or a panel or some you know, layer of accountability following the report, which makes sure that these things are actioned. What this is going to be presented as is essentially a kind of listening exercise, something which says, well, we've taken a good look at ourselves. This is the information we have. And we are, you know, taking the action that's necessary internally to sort this out. Um, it's a face-saving exercise. It absolutely won't result in meaningful change unless politicians act to curtail 
the power and impunity of the Metropolitan Police. We spoke on shows last week about whether or not the resignation of Cressida Dick would change things in the Metropolitan Police. I don't feel like I'm in a position to say either way. What does seem obvious, though, is that Cressida Dick has a lot of responsibility here for what has gone wrong. You know, if there are people who are being appointed to the Metropolitan Police with prior convictions for indecent exposure, if there were loads of red flags about Wayne Cousins and there were allegations of indecent exposure that weren't looked into, that weren't investigated, then ultimately that suggests an institutional problem which goes right to the top, right? And if you have an independent investigator appointed by Cressida Dick, who is reporting to Cressida Dick, and Cressida Dick clearly has a lot of responsibility for what has gone wrong, then I can't see how it is going to be as, as open and honest as it, as it needs to be. It does seem to me that it, it's getting fairly unsustainable for her to stay in that role. I want to go to another thing she said in that brief interview today, because she commented on the advice the Metropolitan Police gave last week to women approached by loan officers. We all realise that uh, a lone woman being approached by a, a man uh, in plain clothes uh, or purporting to be a police officer might be concerned. And my officers, my male officers, understand that absolutely. So it will be rare for a woman to, 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 to meet a single plain clothes officer. I can't rule it out, but it will be a rare occurrence. And um, the officer will, will be sensitive to the fact that the person may be concerned. So they will identify themselves. Uh, they will be happy to ask question, answer questions. Uh, if the woman is you know, ultimately still very concerned, uh, then she could ask for the officer to get the control room. He, the person will almost certainly have a radio to uh, identify the officer for her. Uh, and, and in extremis, of course, um, she may wish to seek uh, you know, other help. But I do want to stress the vast majority of my police officers are good people. They're doing their very best in sometimes difficult circumstances. They are sensitive uh, and they will be hugely alert to the fact that at the moment uh, it's possible that the interaction between uh, a plainclothes male officer and a woman uh, you know, could be challenging and they will want to assist the woman to feel safe and comfortable in that encounter. That was Cressida Dick saying the statement on the Met Police's website last weekend had been taken out of context. We showed you the full statement last week and we didn't take it out of context. They did really say, if you're feeling nervous when you're stopped by a police officer, you can wave down a bus. Ash, what did you make of that last intervention from Cressida Dick? This is something which I've been saying uh, for the last few days, which this, this whole thing is being framed as how do we prevent another Sarah Everard and not how do we prevent another Wayne Cousins? Because it takes a particular kind of woman to be able to identify that the plainclothes officer might not be acting within the scope of their lawful powers, that too, this woman feels able to ask questions of the police officer carrying out their duty or perhaps not, um, and to perhaps run away, seek help, or even resist arrest. There's a lot of presumptions baked into this. One is that this woman hasn't 
uh, actually been doing anything criminal because it actually doesn't matter whether you've done something criminal. You don't deserve to be uh, violently assaulted or sexually harassed or sexually assaulted or abducted or murdered. All right. So it relies on the woman being confident in the idea that she hasn't done anything that could be deemed criminal. That too, she is a kind of woman, probably white, probably middle class, who feels confident that they're not presumed to be criminal and therefore her acts of questioning or perhaps even resistance will be interpreted as coming from a place of fear rather than a place of aggression, right? Or a dangerous form of non-compliance. And then the third thing is that it also assumes that officers who are carrying out their lawful duty, who don't have the same kind of intentions that Wayne Cousins had are perfectly happy with being questioned. Now, Michael, me and you have been on a few protests. How many times have police been happy when they've been asked, what power are you searching, stopping or arresting that person under? How many times have police been happy to uh, confirm or deny whether or not they are indeed an undercover officer? You know, absolutely not. Uh, the police are incredibly defensive and indeed aggressive when questioned about the use of their powers. Anyone who's been in a protest can tell you that. Indeed, anyone who is black or brown and lives in a city can tell you that. Um, that there is not some neat distinction between police you know, behaving lawfully and behaving uh, unlawfully. One, the scope of their powers means that abuses of human dignity can take place firmly within the law. And then the second thing is that even when police officers exceed the boundaries of the law and exceed the boundaries of their power, they have a whole system which is willing to step in and back them up, either in a court of law or just by simply not continuing with a complaint or reacting to quite egregious abuses of power with a mere slap on the wrist, a reprimand or a warning. So this advice to women is totally pitched at how do we stop uh, somebody like Sarah Everard being subject to an abuse of police power? It does not address the central question of how do we stop male police officers from abusing their power in the first place. Because when you ask that question, you have to stop thinking about the person who is presented as a blameless victim. Now, I'm not saying that Sarah Everard had any blame for what happened to her. I'm saying that no victim shares in the blame for being sexually assaulted, sexually harassed, abducted, or murdered. And that those women who are seen to in some way bear responsibility because they've been deemed criminal, perhaps they've got substance abuse issues, perhaps they've been behaving in a volatile way because they've got mental health issues, perhaps they're a sex worker, they deserve protection from predatory and violent officers. And this advice does absolutely nothing to give them the kind of protection they deserve. I think that's such a good point. On every count, it's ridiculous to put this responsibility on women instead of on the police to weed out rapists. It is also, I think, under-discussed the extent to which the ability of anyone to speak back to the police, to call out what they're doing, to question their powers, is so contingent on race and class and how confident someone feels that ultimately, if it gets that far, that a judge would believe what they say, right? Because there are lots of people who say, look, you know, if, if I called out a cop, I mean, still they'd be in a structural position of, of advantage because they're a police officer. But at the same time, I'm white, I went to university, I'm a guy, I, I feel like, you know, I'd, I'd have a good chance in court. There are many people whom court is not going to look as kindly upon them because we live in a classist and, and, and racist society. Final story. Information from a new tranche of leaked documents about secretive offshore firms has been published by a consortium of outlets, including The Guardian 
and the BBC. Following the Panama Papers and the Paradise Papers, this leak is branded the Pandora Papers. Prominent figures in the documents include Tony and Cherie Blair. From the leak, we've learned that the Blairs saved £300,000 in tax when they purchased a London townhouse costing £6.4 million from a Bahraini minister. The Blairs were able to avoid paying the tax because instead of buying the house and paying the relevant stamp duty, they bought the holding company which owned the house. That holding company had been owned by the Bahraini Minister for Industry. It's based in the British Virgin Islands. The Guardian report, While there was nothing illegal about the transaction and there is no evidence the Blairs proactively sought to avoid stamp duty, the deal highlights a loophole that has enabled wealthy property owners not to pay a tax that is commonplace for many ordinary property buyers in the UK. The Guardian are quite clear it wasn't the Blairs' idea to arrange the purchase so as to avoid stamp duty, and Sherry Blair has claimed she had no knowledge of the building's owners and that this financial vehicle was the only way to purchase it. One might ask, though, if you were a former prime minister or their partner, they bought it together, and the property you want is being sold via a tax-avoiding scheme and from a mysterious owner, maybe you just shouldn't buy it. There are no surprises when it comes to Tony Blair, are they? H however low he goes, it's, it, I just take it as a given now. It's like Berlusconi or something. It really does stretch the boundaries of plausibility to claim that you had no idea that the multi-million pound building that you were buying for your strategy company was being you know, sold by a Bahraini minister through a, you know, British Virgin Islands tax haven thing, right? Who 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 goes? Oh, I had no idea. I was just splashing out the cash. I had no idea who was selling it. Right? That's that's that's. I'm I'm sorry. I refuse to believe that. That either means that Cherie Blair is exceptionally stupid, or that she thinks that we are exceptionally stupid. Right? It's one of the two. Um, as for this idea about you know public. Uh, service and politicians, we start the show really by talking about the conflict between labor and capital. We're talking about labor in terms of the workforce, uh, people who uh, actually create value versus those who are able to expropriate it from workers. Um, now, in a different way, we're talking about the conflict between labor and capital and the role of the labor party within it. So the only labor leader who's been able to win elections in the past 40 years is the one who purchased a multi-million pound building via an offshore tax haven. I think that tells you an awful lot about the kind of ideological compromises made by the Labour Party in order to be seen as electable. Tony Blair is and always was an integral part of the establishment, drenched in the culture of the establishment and drenched in the financial practices and values of the establishment. He is not someone who stood up for Labour in that conflict between labor and capital, what he was was an agent of capital um, exceeding to a few demands from labor in order to make sure that the elite could carry on extracting value, dodging tax by exploiting loopholes, getting richer at the expense of everybody else. And he continued to do that just at a more accelerated pace when he left office. Mm. I mean, my favorite fact about Tony Blair, or I think the one that is most telling about how politics works in this country is he's literally the godfather to Rupert Murdoch's child. 
So people are sort of like, oh, no, no, the, you know, the Sun only backed, the, the New Labourites will tell you, the Sun only backed New Labour because they were already on a winning streak. It wasn't that, that Tony Blair made some sinister compromise, some sinister deal with Rupert Murdoch. He literally was the godfather to his son. You know, you cannot get closer than that. It's, it's grotesque. We're going to move on to another story from the Pandora Papers. This one concerns the Conservatives and a leading Tory donor. Mohammed Amersi has given nearly £525,000 to the party since 2018. And he also, according to the leaked papers, had a key role negotiating what US authorities have called a $220 million bribe. At the time, Amersi was providing services to the boss of Telia, a Swedish telecom company who was seeking business in Uzbekistan. He negotiated the multi-million pound payment to the daughter of Uzbekistan's then president. It's a fairly complicated story, but the starting point for this story is as a Swedish company, Telia, they wanted more business in Uzbekistan. That means they have to get the government of Uzbekistan on side. Coincidentally or otherwise, Telia gives shares in its Uzbek subsidiary to Gulnara Karimova, who is the daughter of the then Uzbek president. Her involvement is hidden behind an offshore company. Obviously, the daughter of the president doesn't really want the shares. She wants some cash. So Telia then offered to buy back most of Karimova's shares. And this is where Mohammed Amersi comes in. He handles negotiations with the offshore company. And the evidence here is an email from Telia's boss to Amersi. I do not want to be involved on day-to-day -day negotiations, so maybe you can handle it. Mohammed Amersi, sure, I agree. After that, so negotiated by Amersi, Telia pays Karimova's company $220 million. The US Department of Justice calls it a £220 million bribe payment. And we should say, Mr. Amersi's lawyers say the offshore company had been vetted and approved by Telia. Vetted and approved for what, I suppose, is the question. Vetted and approved as being close in relation to the Uzbek president, so that that would help them get contracts in the country. A lot to say about this story. One of the things for me is that, you know, when people say politics in this country is sort of all tied up with these really dodgy, corrupt Russian or otherwise oligarchs, there was another story today about one of the Russian ones. It just makes this country seem kind of pathetic because the numbers are so small. You know, like 500 <laughs> is all you need to sort of get the government to be on your side. Because, you know, people say, oh, we need to clamp down on tax avoiders. If one of the conservatives' main sources of income is all of these people involved in, in tax avoidance, that clearly is going to significantly affect their ability to, to clamp down on it. At the same time, could we not just agree that, you know, we could, if we publicly funded political parties, all you've got to replace is a few million quid, right? It's like 0.001% or whatever of... of, of government spending and then we could be free from all of these terrible oligarchs why don't we just why don't we just do that well look i mean political parties aren't hugely expensive operations in this country particularly when you compare it to you know other organizations right they're relatively cheap so you can buy influence if you're an oligarch and you can buy your way out of uh, your tax obligations or the rules which would apply to everybody else for a remarkably small sum of money. So I was quite struck by the Richard Desmond, Robert Jenrick thing, where Richard Desmond got a property development approved within a time frame, which meant that he skipped out on having to pay, pay quite a big uh, a sum in tax to Tower Hamlets Council, Tower Hamlets, where 55% of children are in poverty. Uh, Robert Jenrick helped expedite this uh, property deal, and it meant that he dodged having to pay millions in tax. The amount which was donated to the Conservative Party 
was £12,000. So it's £12,000, which avoids you multiple, like millions, tens of millions in tax. £12,000 is nothing. It's an absolute bargain. So you're right. These sums of money are really small. The thing that struck me though, particularly when you were uh, going through uh, the sequencing of this bribe was the role of family. And it kind of made me think about, you know, uh, Tony Blair being godfather to Rupert Murdoch's son. And then you've got this element here of the role of the Uzbek's president's daughter. Is that the establishment really do run themselves like a mafia, like a criminal gang? The structures and the hierarchies are the same. It might be on the right side of the law. And trust me, that's a technicality rather than a moral value. But the sort of networks of patronage, the role of family, the concentration of wealth, power and influence within blood ties, it's got mafia written all over it. The difference is, is that it's legal. That's it. And, and, and that tells you something about how vast this power is rather than whether or not it is moral, whether or not it's good for people, whether or not it's good for society, democracy, the public at large. I presume there will be lots more coming out of these papers in the week to come. One thing that's interesting, Ash, I saw this on Twitter, this is incredibly speculative, but I saw on Twitter someone saying, it's interesting how in these tranches of documents that are released, Americans are never really involved. And so they speculated, I wonder where these leaks are coming from. And it, you know, it, as I say, completely speculative. But it wouldn't surprise me if some of this is coming from like the American intelligence services because they're kind of pissed off Britain being such a sort of wild, wild west place. But it's always Britain, Russia are always implicated. It's always those Central Asian countries. You know, Britain, obviously, as involved as, as anyone in this, the city of London is, is the capital for money laundering. But it could be the case that this is other governments trying to embarrass Britain and, and other sort of international billionaires to get their houses in order. I don't know, I'm going to throw this at you, Ash. Do you, do, you, do you buy my speculative conspiracy theory? I mean, look, I think it could be. It might also be that, you know, you have such a litigious culture in the United States, particularly around billionaires, what assets they own, so on and so forth. That's maybe just harder to get at some of this stuff. Um, you know, the culture is, is uh, the political culture and the media reporting culture is a lot more stacked in the interests of oligarchs. The one difference is, is that they've got looser libel and defamation laws than we do here, which is comparatively strict. Um, so maybe that's the difference. But I think there could be something in what you're saying. Mm. I buy it. But then again, I buy anything. I'm an easy customer. You don't have to convince me. When in doubt, in assume the Central Intelligence Agency are involved. Ash, it's been a pleasure being joined by you this evening. Thank you, everyone, for your super chats tonight. We'll be back on Wednesday at 7 p.m. So make sure to hit subscribe. For now, you've been watching Tisky Sour on Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navara Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.